I'm on scene. I'll be assuming Caroline Street Command. I got a two and a half story wood occupied multiple dwelling. I got heavy fire from the second floor, Charlie side. I have an exposure on the Delta side. We have one line stretch, not in operation yet. Primary searches are underway. Status of the fire is doubtful. One passing command, I'm on the first line. Greetings, welcome back, Volley Chief fans. This is Chief Leonard, and we're going to be on episode uh, two of our special River Restaurant series. I want to thank everyone. We got a lot of tremendous feedback on the first episode, a lot of uh, good buzz, a, a very nice reflection of the event. So we're going to continue today with the, the second part of our series, and uh, we're going to start talking to some of the actual responders that were there. So for the, the first responder to... to talk to today is one of the the first people on scene uh i'm gonna throw the asterisk out there right now that this this could be a hostile interview you know um so the one of the first people on scene are ambulance and derby at the time um again let me give you the 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 backup too of the explanation that our ambulance corps is separate from the fire department and the ambulance corps provides rescue services for the city however the overwhelming majority of the membership belong to both organizations so the uh, fire company is the storm engine company number two and the ambulance corps is the storm engine company ambulance corps so we like to do that just to confuse everybody but we interchange them a lot because most of the members belong to both organizations so they were on a medical uh transported to griffin hospital derby again very small five square miles we have a small community hospital griffin hospital it's about 160 bed acute care facility and the ambulance was returning from a call uh, when the call came in on the crew obviously at that time was my father Tom Leonard senior at that point uh, he had been in the fire department since 1975 and uh, and again so he's been in the department for a decade he was assistant chief in the ambulance corps at the time still a firefighter with the fire department and then one of the uh, unique parts of my father's story is he he had to switch roles and obviously we're, we're going to talk about that because he was also a sergeant in the police department at the time so i'm going to let my father introduce himself give you a little bit of background on him and uh his experience and then we'll get into the incident so uh dad you're up hello everyone um tom leonard senior a uh, little background as dave said i was uh, been in the fire department since 1975 uh going through all the officers chairs um, also a police officer since 1976 uh, and an EMT since 1974. Uh, so I've had a little emergency services experience. Uh, so I was, uh, as David said, uh, we were returning from a call when we got the call at the River Restaurant. Uh, I was with uh, a gentleman by the name of Clarence Douglas. Uh, Doug was uh, part of the greatest generation and he was our driver. I'll give you a, a, a quick background on Doug just to give you kind of the experience that he had. Uh, Doug was a intelligence officer during World War II who landed on D-Day and fought in all five of the major land battles in the European theater uh, during World War II. And just a, a well-respected, worked for the phone company, ran our fire alarm system. But a, a lot of people in the Valley knew Doug very well. And he was very well respected. Uh, he he was, not to get off topic, but he, he was given a very high award, the Legion of Honor, by the French government before his passing. So 
a lot of people in our area remember Doug and, and know him. But uh, what do you remember, Dad? Like what? Like what did it come in as? It came in as uh, an explosion, um, and I remember saying to Doug, we were we were turning from the hospital onto Seymour Avenue, which basically overlooks Main Street. And I remember saying to him, uh, even though it was coming in as an explosion, we said it was probably, you know, Doug said to me, he said it was probably a pot on the stove. And as we were looking at the area where Main Street was, there was this very, very funny haze hanging over the area. And I remember Doug turning to me and saying, we better get the rescue truck. I've seen a lot of buildings blown up during the war. And all I know is that haze means something bad. Uh, so we set out to head to the, the call. Um, we stopped, got the rescue truck, and then responded to the scene. Which, again, Derby being a very small community, it wasn't a big detour. Uh, to get from the hospital on Seymour Avenue to downtown where the incident was, you, you really had to go behind the firehouse. You were one block off on Elizabeth Street, so it wasn't a big detour. So did you, you drove in on the ambulance or the rescue truck? Uh, on the rescue truck. Um, Doug took the ambulance ahead of me. And then when you, you got there, like when, when did you realize like it was that bad? Um, as soon as we pulled up, um, the front of the building, what was the front, was literally blown across the street into the buildings uh, on the other side of the street. Uh, the building was leaning. It looked like uh, almost, uh, the best way to describe it is like an A-frame. Uh, the, the, the floors had pancake down, uh, but there were openings in the front of the building from where the, the front literally blew across the street. So obviously the, the type of collapse was, was more of a pancake, which we know is not as good for victims uh, as like an A-frame collapse in the, in the you know, emergency services. There's two types of building collapse, like a lean-to, or uh, a pancake, and and this was where basically the force of the explosion caused the floors to come down like a stack of pancakes on top of each other. So, um, seeing that and knowing the building and knowing the restaurant, uh, we knew that there had to be a lot of people in that building, and the thought was, let's get in there and see who we can get out. And the building was on fire. The back of the building looked like it was it had collapsed. Um, and I remember going into the building, and one of the first people I saw was the owner, uh, Alfonso Ippolino Sr., and he was covered in blood, and I remember taking him out of the building and getting him out, even though he vehemently protested uh, he was not coming out of that building until we knew where everybody was. Um, so we, we, we pulled him out, and I remember going back into the building and seeing one of uh, my other uh, police officers who also volunteered with the uh, with the ambulance as an EMT, uh, Andy Coda, and we went back into the building. And the strangest thing happened: out of a pile of rubble, I saw somebody's hand come up. Uh, it looked like something out of a horror movie. And I looked, and there was a lady just under all of the the rubble and the tables and the chairs. Uh, I pulled her out uh, with Andy. We got her out to the sidewalk and out, out to the street. And we were going back in. We got about maybe 15, 20 feet into the building. And you could feel the floor starting to shift a little bit. Uh, Andy said to me, he said, we better get out of here. He said, we're going to be wearing this building in a few minutes. So that was when we, we kind of gave up trying to do any kind of a rescue from the front of the building. Now, as our technology grows here on the Volley Chief, so that there, there's a, a picture. And uh, I know that we've talked about some pictures before, which is obviously a terrible thing to do on a podcast. But there's a picture of you. Uh, and Andy 
talking out in front of the building. Was, was that, do you know, do you remember like when that was? Was that before you guys went in? Was that after you guys came out? It seemed like pretty early in the incident because that front facade was still standing. It hadn't collapsed yet. That was actually uh, right after we came out of the building. We were both trying to assess what the next move was going to be. And one of the things we were trying to figure out is how do we know how many people were in this place and where they were? Uh, and that was one of the biggest concerns right then. Uh, it was a popular restaurant, and on a Friday afternoon, uh, you were lucky. Christmas you, time. It was Christmas time, and you were lucky if you got a seat uh, when you came there if you didn't have to wait for an hour or two, uh, because that's how popular the restaurant was. It was a local family. Uh, the Hippolitos the had been known for years and years and years throughout the valley, uh, so it was, it was not something that you would expect wouldn't have people inside. And our biggest concern was how many, where are they, and how do we account for them? Right, and then at what point, you know, a after that, after you and Andy, uh, Chief Coda, because he went on to be police chief, so I'll, I'll probably refer to him as Chief Coda. Uh, at what point did you and Chief Coda, after that, wh what did you guys do next? Uh, next thing was uh, basically trying to grab Mr. Ippolito and get an accounting from him of who was there and what they were doing and where in the building they should have been. Uh, he was he was very good. He was for somebody who had been in the building when it exploded. Um, he was not. He was shaken, but he still could think critically. And he was telling us where uh, the cooks and the staff should be. Uh, he was telling us who was in the building and who was at the bar at the time. And uh, fortunately, he told us that he was expecting 200 people for a Christmas party that night. Uh, an hour later, but they hadn't started arriving yet. Uh, so we had some idea of about a dozen people that were inside. Uh, there were also people out on the street. Uh, again, back then, there were other businesses. It was a pretty vibrant business area, and there were people on the street that were injured. Uh, so we were starting to take an accounting of them. Uh, we were calling for more resources. Uh, I remember making one call to CMED New Haven asking for 20 ambulances. And the response I got was, uh, we'll find them. Um, let us know what else you need. And with that, I remembered uh, the director, John Gustafson, asking me if I wanted help from New Haven. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, some of the New Haven firefighters, including Chief Grant, uh, responded to the building. Chief Seward, Billy Seward, uh, yep. you know, good good friend of us, of ours here in Derby, along with Chief Grant. You know, they, the, the, there's a very close relationship between the Derby and the New Haven Fire Departments, and it's kind of an oddity between a, a big city fire department and a small town volunteer department. And it, it's existed for a very long time, and th they've always been. If you look historically, when there was something big happening in the valley, you know, we got the, I hate, you know, use the local term in New Haven, the school would dump and, and come to help the valley. I mean, even, you know, as recently as the, the large scale latex foam fire, you know, a lot of resources, Chief Grant. Uh, you know, came up and, and assisted with running that. So it, it's it's those great relationships that you have that that's one of the things that made this work even back then. Um, and just for background too, for the C CMED system, that's our uh, ambulance mutual aid. It's its primary purpose was to establish hospital to ambulance communications, but they also handled ambulance mutual aid. So when you would get a medical call, you'd sign on with your with the fire department saying you were going, and then you'd let CMED know you were going if you needed a paramedic, if you needed to speak to the doctor, or if you had an accident and you needed more ambulances, you went through CMED. So uh, 
back then the the dispatching in Derby was a single cop on the desk at the Derby police station, uh, who was Artie Fredericks, who was also another well-known member of the Storms. And he would say that, you know, thank God for CMED because he couldn't get a phone call out of the police station because so many people were calling in. So CMED played a very vital part in, in coordinating the EMS and the medical response to this. So uh, what next? Uh, so after that, we, uh, we began to assess how many people there were. We asked that the, uh, the local hospital, Griffin Hospital, implement the uh, disaster plan that they had uh, so they could start bringing in resources for trauma victims. Um, we started treating some of the victims out in front, and we became aware that uh, they were in contact with someone in the back of the building who was trapped under the rubble. They could hear them talking, uh, and so that pretty much launched another type of a search, and that was trying to find a way into where he was and how to get him out of there. Uh, and, and that would have been the, the owner's son, Michael Eppolito. He Correct? Yes. Okay, so he, he was trapped, and that's kind of... Uh, you know, going to be a central focus because, you know, for the time and the equipment and the knowledge, it, it was a, you know, it's going to be a, a tremendous undertaking to, to get to him. It, uh, the incident also uh, was ultimately sparked by a gas leak. And as we were working, uh, they were determining that there was, there were gas pockets all in the area. Uh, we had to evacuate some of the other buildings um, we also had to uh, had to move some of the rescue equipment back away from the building, uh, and again, this is all happening at once. So we're trying to coordinate medical, we're trying to coordinate rescue services, and we're there's still a fire in the building. Uh, so it, it just was uh, an undertaking that no one really could have ever prepared for. And again, back then, gas meters weren't a dime a dozen like they're now they are nowadays. Correct. Correct. You, no, hardly anybody had one other than the gas company. Okay. Did, did we have one back then? Do you know? We did have one, um, and we put it to good use, and that was immediately taken off the scale. Right. Um, and that was that prompted some of the evacuations. Uh, and I remember, as much as you don't want to see them, there were a lot of spectators that were drawn to it, and we were we had to move those people back several blocks uh, from the area because. There was a danger of gas pockets filling into the sewers and causing more explosions. Now, the 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 rescue of Michael Eppolito took two avenues, right? There were two attempts to affect the rescue. One was basically top down from the pile, and one was coming in next door from what was the Artisan Press at the time building. So, am I am I correct? Yes. In understanding. Yes. So now, uh, w explain like where you went well, from there. From there, I went. Uh, to the back of the building, uh, saw one of my other assistant chiefs uh, from the ambulance corps, Pat Lahaza, and Chief Rant. And so we found our way into the basement of the adjacent building. Uh, and it was the area he was, Michael was in, uh, was pretty much against the wall of the, the adjacent building. But uh, it was a brick built, it was a brick wall that we had to get through. And it was tricky because the structures were still shifting and, and settling. Uh, so we began trying to pull bricks out of the out of that area, uh, pull them out of the wall, and we could hear guys talking to Michael, uh, and trying to get a better sense of how close we were and where we were. Um, we were there a good 10-15 minutes. We had gotten almost completely through the wall, when the building we were in started to shift and lean, 
and that was when when Chief Grant said okay guys time to get out of here because this isn't going to stand up much more uh, and especially with people digging from different areas we didn't know what was going to be the weak area to fall in next so with that we we withdrew from the building and basically centered all the rescue efforts on coming in from the rear of the building and going top down uh, the good thing was there was heavy equipment there that we actually got some of the volunteers to run uh, from a construction site so that we could start moving debris faster and, and, and more now at, at this point Dad, were you like aware of like the who is in the building right so we we talked last week about you know mrs pogazowski and the, the fact that her son was a member of the storms and, and were you guys aware at that point that you you know that, that members of the fire department's family were the, the victims that you were looking for? We, we, we found that out, um, I'd say about an hour into the rescue. Um, we found out, uh, again, from talking to other people who were in the building or who were with, associated with the restaurant, who should have been there and who would have been there. Um, and we knew there were, there were approximately six people that we didn't hear from. Uh, what we were hearing was that they were, they were in voice, com voice communication with one person on the east side of the building and then uh, they thought they heard another person on the southwest side of the building. Uh, so there were, there were only two people that we were talking to. Uh, we did find out that there were, and again, because the valley is so small, uh, there were members of our own company whose family was in there working at the time. Um, ultimately, we had found out they were deceased. And, and, you know, last week we, we sat down with Pogo, Pete, Pete Pogosowski, the son of Connie, and, again, a longtime member of the Storm Engine Company. And, you know, I, I explained to him that I was doing the podcast and, and that we were going to be talking about uh, the, the, the explosion. And I, I'll tell you, he, he gave me some of the best source material, some of the best information, and uh, I, I really appreciate that, especially, you know, coming from his, you know, obviously involvement in it and, and you know it's just another layer of of the story and speaking of other layers at what point did you have to you know i hate to say turn your spidey sense on but what point did you you know start switching into what i would call like cop mode because you know the city of derby is not very large and the police department's only about 30 officers so at what point did you have to pull back and and assume you know your 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 full-time job well it was uh it was probably, I'd say, about two hours, two and a half hours into the incident. Um, actually, Sergeant Fredericks, Detective Sergeant Fredericks at the time, said to me, go home, put your uniform on. You're coming back here to work. we got to start dealing with crowd control, and we got to figure out where we're going to go from here. Uh, we got to start trying to preserve whatever evidence there could be. So at that point in time, I kind of had to dis disconnect from the ambulance and, and the rescue mode and go into the, uh, the police officer mode. Uh, so that became the, the focus. Um, and with that, we were trying to find a place to land a helicopter. Uh, Lifestar was called. Uh, we were also trying to deal with the media. Uh, the media crush from this event was just immense. Uh, so uh, having 30 officers uh, and only having six on a shift made it very difficult uh, to pretty much call for all hands uh, for the biggest problem was Route 34 and this this incident is very close to Route 8. Uh, it's a key intersection in the town of Derby and it's a key in intersection for the state of Connecticut. Traffic was at a virtual standstill. On a Friday night 
that road is is traffic mess to begin with and now trying to get people in or out of that area trying to get resources in and out of that area became almost impossible uh, because you had to just literally fight your way through the traffic so at that point in time is when i i switched from one mode into the other and did you did you come home and change yes i remember that like I things did. you know i do <laughs> i remember like you know dad ran in the house and changed and ran back out the door um so obviously now on the the cop side of things you're you're worried i mean it is a crime scene at that point you know the the event you know you're not sure what happened now obviously we all everyone knew at the time if you listen to the the what i'll call the calvert video mr calvert's video within 30 seconds of him starting filming the entire crowd out in front of the the calvert safe building across the street is talking about how all day they smelled gas so were you guys aware too that that of the, the gas issue at that point like being an ongoing problem or we, we were aware that the gas company had been called a couple times to the area um, we did not know what the resolution of those calls were uh, so uh, at that point in time it was an assumption and it was pretty much an informed assumption that uh, there was there was probably gas involved in this thing uh, so uh, again it wasn't a positive thing but it was something we surmised uh, and you know again from the the experiences that we had we sort of knew that's where it was coming from and once you arrived back on scene in you know cop mode like what what was your assignment then what were you handling uh, basically uh, setting up uh, uh, scene scene security um, we had to make preparations again because we surmised there was going to be a lot of people potentially in that building we had to call the office of the chief medical examiner and we were actually tasked to set up a, a, a morgue in an adjacent parking lot um, with refrigerated trucks to potentially hold victims um, so that was in, in the works we also had to uh, bring in our officers and we brought in officers from other towns to begin setting up traffic patterns so that we could start clearing out the area for more equipment because there was going to be a need for heavier equipment than what was on scene so it was traffic it was site security and safety and it was uh, work with the uh, the chief medical examiner uh, and basically transporting ambulances in and out of the area if I remember correctly approximately 20 people were transported uh, with various injuries broken bones contusions stuff you would expect from a, a building or a, an explosion and and looking back you know do you were we prepared for anything like that yes and no uh, I'd say we were more prepared than we thought we were uh, and you never know how prepared you are until you find out how prepared you're not right I mean we always joke right Mike Tyson's famous quote everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face and, and I, I think that, you know, growing up, I remember us doing a lot of disaster drills. We would, we would do, we would try to do an annual disaster drill with the entire valley. Um, uh, and again, it was, uh, we would pick a different town each time. Uh, we would notify all the EMS services, all the fire departments and law enforcement. And, you know, the, the, the Valley Fire Chief School uh, became the focal point for most of those exercises and so we we were not only involved in responding to those drills but we were very deeply involved with the valley fire school in setting those exercises up uh, so it, it it basically paved the way for us to uh, be prepared and hope 
that we never have to be as prepared as we had to that day. Uh, but we, we were able to quickly, I'd say, assess the scene and move people uh, to where they needed to be, hospitals uh, and wherever else they had to go. So it, it did work uh, better than we could have anticipated. Now, again, we, we have the audio of the incident from CMED, and it's, it's a very terrible quality. Uh, but again, if you listen to the audio, it's everybody implementing the disaster plans. You know, it's, uh, it's you calling and asking for it. It's, it's Artie calling and asking for it. And then it's, you know, the, the CMED calling Griffin and letting them know. And it's everybody, you know, ramping that beast up. And it, it I think, you know, after all these years of listening to that, it, it does show that the, there was some level of preparedness, I think, on the mass casualty side. You know, obviously, at that point in the Valley, over the past decade, you, you, you guys, as the, the volunteer, the firefighters, you had kind of been beat up. I mean, you know, a decade earlier, you had the BF Goodridge explosion. Uh, you had Hull Die. You know, you, you had a lot of these large-scale, massive, you know, fires and incidents, too, that, that all kind of add up, correct? Yes. They, uh, the Valley, unfortunately, had been uh, the center for what at the time was one of the largest uh, arson for hire uh, incidents in the state in the United States. That was the BF Goodrich fire. Um, BF, uh, the Hull Dye fire basically took out an entire factory. Um, we had latex foam um, and we had several major incidents, uh, all pretty much people learned from. Uh, and, you know, as, as Dave said, the EMS side of it was mass casualty. Uh, the fire side uh, became the, the uh, if, I, if I can, the best way to put it would be the, the proving grounds for the incident command system. Um, while it wasn't formalized, um, it normally would fall into place, uh, only because the valley is such a small town, a small area, that when the fire department from Ansonia came, you knew who the chiefs were, you knew who the guys who were in charge were. Shelton came, you knew those chiefs. So as you all came together, you knew who you were dealing with, you knew what resources they could bring to the table, and you knew how you could best utilize them. And as we saw uh, many years later, and as the fire service has progressed, um, we now have a formalized incident command system that you know, people don't even think twice about anymore. It just falls into place the minute you get on scene. And how, how long were you on scene? Do you remember how long were you there? Personally? Yeah. Uh, I remember getting home a day and a half later, um, and that was just being there the entire time uh, until we could start rotating our people out and sending them home for rest. Um, the entire field investigation took approximately two and a half weeks, um, and that was dealing with the gas companies, the construction companies in the area, the, uh, the debris removal teams, um, and then... We had uh, NTSB. I mean, you had the whole alphabet soup of federal agencies that were getting involved with it. All right. Well, um, I mean, anything else that you want to? Um, no. Um, if I, <laughs> it's a day that I, I sort of, I, I sort of just hope to get through um, with nothing happening. Uh, the time of the year, the holidays, um, the people you knew, the funerals, the wakes. Um, all of that just seemed to compound uh, into one very scary s scenario for the entire valley. 
Um, we lost a lot of good, good people and a lot of established families and their members. And so it's something you'll never forget. Uh, but at least you were there and you could offer some sense of saying, hey, we tried our best and this is what we did to help. Now, after you got home, after that day and a half, I'm, I'm sure by then, you know, the mom had had it with us. I'm, I'm sure the oldest child and the youngest child were terrible, but the middle child was probably an angel for that time, too. I would, I was just throwing that out there as a guess. We, we all know the middle child. <laughs> <laughs> but so. uh, I, I can remember when I got home, actually, um, Ellen, my wife, had taken you guys out so I could get some sleep. And the first thing I did, I laid down and the phone rang. And it happened to be my mother-in-law. And she was, we had about a 10-minute conversation. And I, that's something I won't forget because she kind of knew I was shot. I was tired. Um, and she was just really supportive. Um, I was very lucky to have a mother-in-law like her. And uh, she just, you know, kind of put me at ease uh, just so that I could get to bed and move on with the things that had to be done. Well, if there was any wife in the valley that could handle the stress of being a first responder's wife, it would have been my grandmother, right? I mean, after dealing with my grandfather for all those years, for her, that was probably no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> all right, so thanks, Dad. I, it was a, a, you know, a great time. Uh, I thank you for, for sharing the story. So uh, next week, we're, gonna, we're bringing back our first guest, Mike Wittick. Um, Mike was one of the guys that was involved in tunneling down from the top. Uh, to, to rescue Mike at Valido. So we're going to cover that a little bit more. But until uh, next week, stay tuned. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And have a good weekend, everybody.